Exodus chapter 15 this morning. And actually I'm going to begin reading in verse 30 of chapter 14, just a few few verses earlier. Bible's open. Ready to hear the word? All right. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. And then Moses and the sons of Israel sang. They sang. They just busted out into song. They didn't do what church people are wont to do, which is sit quietly and not interrupt and make sure that nobody is offended. Be quiet and comfortable. Sit still this morning because we're in church. Moses and the sons of Israel had no problem busting into song in this moment. It wasn't planned. They didn't rehearse. They just broke out singing. God parted the waters of the, of the Red Sea in one fell swoop. He miraculously led Israel through while at the same time destroying the entire army supernaturally of Egypt. And some have questioned this Red Sea miracle. Some have said, oh, it couldn't have possibly happened. Some have even tried to, tried to uh, come up with different theories that maybe it, it wasn't... The Red Sea was the Reed Sea, which is another name for it. That at the top of the, the canal there where the, uh, where the Red Sea branches off, and we saw that last week, there's some distance of land, and then there's what's called the Bitter Lakes. And between the top of the Red Sea and the Bitter Lakes, they believe at one time was probably covered with water that it reached all the way up. But it was probably covered in a very thin amount of water, maybe six to eight inches of water. And there are many who say a, a very strong east wind could drive that out, could dry it off. And the children of Israel could then walk through the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. And people say, well, maybe it wasn't so miraculous after all. The thing is, if it was six to eight inches deep, here's the thing to understand. A greater miracle occurred than would have occurred if it was a full-blown, very deep sea. Because the entire Egyptian army drowned in the Red Sea. Six to eight inches of water and he drowned an army. That's a miracle. That's supernatural. People try to explain it away, but I'll tell you what, there's a group of people who do not try to explain it away. The people of Israel. Moses didn't try to explain it away. He saw it with his own eyes. Oh yeah, how many witnesses were really there? Oh, around three million. And not only did the children of Israel know about this, but as you will see, the surrounding nations heard and knew that this Red Sea was parted. That the Egyptian army that many nations feared was drowned in that sea. This was well known around the world. And so what do they do? This supernatural, fantastic, amazing, mind-blowing saving of, of God. What did they do in this deliverance? They sang. They sang. They broke into a stirring chorus of praise because that's what you do when you realize you've been saved. When you know that you've been delivered. When you know that your life has been pulled out of the deep. That you have been saved by the Lord. You worship. It's what you do. Sometimes I wonder if we in the church realize how saved we truly are. Realize the distance God went. Realize how fantastic 
our deliverance from sin in this world truly is. Because if we realized that, we'd really have a hard time keeping quiet. We would struggle with it. We'd be like, yes, Lord! Sorry. I didn't mean, you know, sorry. What the saved do when they realize they are saved is they worship. Let's pray for a moment. God, I pray that you will open up our hearts this morning. God, we have come here to worship. And in this barn, in this place, we come wrapped up in our, in our clothing, in our, in our comfort, trying to make it, it as comfortable as possible in these cold metal chairs. And God, we're not here to be comfortable. And Lord, we are not here to look right. And we are not here to present ourselves to each other. We're not even here for each other. God, we realize that's a, a side benefit, the fellowship that happens. Lord, we're here to worship you and to praise you and to lift your name on high. And I pray, Lord, that our worship this morning would continue. That it's not just a segment of what happens on Sunday morning, but we worship in the Word. That you would lead us straight on through. And as we study these things and look at this amazing song that Israel and Moses sang, that you would lift up and ignite a song in our hearts. That we would worship like the saved. Holy Spirit, teach us these things this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read this song to you, beginning in verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will extol Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His army He has cast into the sea. And the choicest of His officers He has drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. Doesn't sound like six to eight inches to me. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The waters were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword and my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. And then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed, and the leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them by the greatness of your arm. They are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord. Until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your holy dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. What an awesome, awesome song. 
This spilled forth out of the mouth of Moses. Exodus 15, by the way, it presents us with the first recorded song in the Bible. This is the first time we have a song at all. Now, Job tells us that there were angels singing at the creation. But this is the first time in Scripture we have a song, the lyrics before us. What's amazing about that to me is it's not only the first song, it's also the last song that that we hear talked about in Scripture. Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. John writes saying, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses. Same song. They sang the song of Moses. Well, why would they sing the song of Moses? God didn't lead them through the Red Sea. Yes, but God saved us from the deep. Pulled us out of the pit. Parted the waters and allowed us to walk through into salvation, which is not something deserved, folks. But it is something God did. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Song of Moses is both the first and the last song, which in my mind makes it makes an incredibly significant inscription. Incredibly important. And I want to walk through the words of this song this morning for a very specific reason. This was one of those weeks where God got a hold of me and really rattled my chain. He really woke me up to the thought of worship. Shook me up. There were things going on for me. It was times where it was a heavy week, personally. And God spun me around. It's about worshiping me and trusting me. And I want to look at some things this morning. Several things if you want to jot these down. Because in the soaring lyrics of Moses' song, the Holy Spirit reveals to us what worship, I believe, is truly all about. Why we come together to worship in the first place. And the first thing to jot down is worship is response. Worship is response. Worship is response. Verse 1 again, I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Now this song is adapted two more times in Scripture, aside from being mentioned in Revelation. This specific verse, the Lord is my strength and my song, He has become my salvation. Psalm 118 and Isaiah 12 both use the same line. Both draw from the same words. The Lord is my strength, my song, and He has become my salvation. Psalm 118 verse 14. That was written following, by the way, the Jews' return from Babylonian captivity. They had yet been saved by the Lord again, and so out come the words, He has become my salvation. Flipping your Bibles to Isaiah 12, you need to see this with your own eyes. Isaiah 12 in verse 1. Isaiah 12, 1. It's about midway through the Bible if you're not sure where you're going with, with the different books. And by the way, having your Bibles open, having them with you this morning is incredibly important. The Bible is not a book to be afraid of, it's a book to learn and understand. So the more you have it, the more you have opportunity to find where we are. Just split the book, go halfway through, and you're probably going to find Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 1. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. There it is. Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. 
in that day, you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, make them remember that His name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for He has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And that song will be sung when Jesus again sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem. A song of salvation. The song of the redeemed, as we just sang. The song of the saved. But listen, every time this song is sung, every time it comes up in Scripture, somebody has been or will be saved. And worship is response. And as I said a few moments ago, sometimes I think we need to get rattled a bit out of the doldrums of just coming in and being at church and singing our songs and then we do the communion and then we do the the Bible study part and then we go home. Gang, we are here to respond to the salvation of God. Have you been saved? I mean, do you believe that you're going to heaven? Is that a good thing? Are you excited about that? Yeah. Thank you. I mean, praise the Lord, folks. And I'm not talking about us jumping off the rafters, although if you feel, you know, like you need to do that, we'll pick you up and dust you off. But I'm talking about knowing that God saved us. My goodness. What are we even here for? If not to respond to the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, to say, thank you, Lord. We worship you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. You are our God. Worship is the natural response of the saved. Jesus was out healing at one point in his ministry. He healed a lot. But there was one point in Matthew 15 where we read that for three days Jesus had been doing nothing but healing. He hadn't been teaching. He hadn't been playing with the kids on his knees. That may have happened on and off. But he had been focused on nothing but healing. And listen to this verse. Matthew 15, 31. The crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And what did they do? They glorified the God of Israel. Because when you are saved, when you are healed, when you're redeemed, when you're restored, that's what you do. You praise God. You thank God. You worship. But Israel didn't start out that way. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, you may recall, they were not joyfully singing. They were mournfully sighing. But God has now changed their sighing into singing, and they are so filled up with the miraculous, supernatural salvation, their deliverance, that they bust into this amazing song. Exodus 2.23, the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. They cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God, and He saved them. And when that happened, they couldn't help but to sing. And dang, when we're lifted from our bondage, when we're redeemed, when we are healed of our disease, the sighs are replaced by the song, the song of the redeemed, which is why we worship. It's why we're here. And you may say, well, Rick, I'm no singer. I couldn't carry a tune in the bucket. You wouldn't want me to sing loudly. It would damage the whole goal of this church. No, it wouldn't. Because the whole goal of this church is to worship the Father. And God loves people who sing. You know what? Moses was not a singer. As a matter of fact, Moses' own description of himself, Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, is, I have never been eloquent. And neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Well, Mo isn't having any trouble singing now. 
He's not having any trouble allowing the words to pour forth out of his mouth because he has been saved. And the children of Israel didn't expect it. They weren't lined up to the Red Sea going, okay, how soon is it going to part? Because, you know, Egypt's over, we need to get going, Lord. They were freaking out when the water began to part. They were scared to death. And as they walked through that mighty parting of the sea, can you imagine? Just the... It would be overwhelming. And then to get to the other side and to watch the seas closing in on your enemy and knowing they will never chase you down again. Song! It's what you do when you are saved. Worship is the heart's cry. And it doesn't matter if you're a good singer. That has nothing to do with worship. Did you know that? It has nothing to do with worship. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Worship is a heart issue, not a vocal cord issue. And so when you come in here to worship the Lord, or when you're worshiping in your car, man, a lot of us have no trouble worshiping loudly in our cars. And we can sing, it's the song of our redeemed, and we're driving down the road, and nobody hears us. It's just us and the Lord, this is great, you know, bad notes are flying. And we come in here, and we go, it's the song of redeemed. You know, hey, let me give you permission to offend everyone around you with loud, horrible singing. But make sure it's coming from the heart to the Father. Man, if you're singing to Him, who cares what anyone else thinks? The Lord looks on the heart. And Psalm 98, verse 4. I love this verse. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Make a joyful noise. All the earth. Make a loud noise. Ha! I don't know. Just make a loud noise. Worship. You have been saved. Singing from the heart, gang, it's a delight to the Lord. It's the response of being saved. In Ephesians 5.19, Paul says, Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart or with your heart to the Lord. So how about you? Do you understand the supernatural nature of your salvation in Jesus Christ? Do we know how saved we are? Are you here for the praise or the performance? on Sundays are you more focused on intimacy or instrumentation are you inspired by the Lord God or by the loud guitars what is it that moves you in worship what if Hank broke his arm doing an Italian flamenco (laughs) what if a typhoon tied up Tom on West Beach and he couldn't make it here at all what if Becky's fingers got frostbite What if Leif, on some shocking Sunday, spontaneously combusted? As has happened to drummers back in the 70s and 60s, I've heard. Seriously, think for a moment. If all this was gone, could we not worship the Lord? Could we not praise Him? Could we not sing out in joint worship a chorus to the Lord thanking Him for our salvation Israel didn't have time to pull out the sound system to strap on the guitars or set up the drum set Israel just sang the song of the redeemed worship is response the response of the saved to the Savior secondly worship is a reach it's a reach look at the second part of verse 2 This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will extol Him. The word extol there, it's an important word, it's a Hebrew word, room. R-U-W-M, room. And room literally means to lift up. 
to reach, to lift up the Lord in worship. But listen, gang, as we lift up the Lord, we make room for Him in our hearts. We make room for Him to rule on the throne of our hearts. Psalm 22, verse 3, You are holy, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And gang, when we worship the Lord from the heart, we're doing something. We're establishing a throne, a place that God resides and rules over us. And let me encourage you, when you're feeling heavy in your heart, that's the time to start worshiping. That's the time when you need to sing to the Lord. Tuesday afternoon, I got a call from the bank. Most of you know that we're building a house, and I'm trying to figure out how to make all the ends meet and make it work and everything. And, and the bank called up, and, and I had last week talked to our, our uh, supervisor or our advisor from the bank, and, and she said, it looks like they can put off when the loan is going to roll. If you know anything about bank loans for houses, especially when, for building loans, uh, you have a certain amount of time that you have to build the house in. And if it takes longer than that, the, the loan rolls. In other words, you start paying your mortgage. And so I was freaking out. What am I going to have to pay the mortgage? And I talked to this lady last week, and she said, well, I, I can probably put it off for a couple of months. And I'm like, yeah. The kids are going to have Christmas after all. You know what I mean? It was a good day. Tuesday, she calls up. Bad news. We've automated the system. And the loan is going to roll on the date that we said it would. And I just went. I was in the middle of studying this message. And it just got heavy and dark in the house. I was the only one there. And I tried to get back to it. Okay. Okay. And and I'm telling you, like five minutes, I'm trying to force it. And I just stopped and went, Lord, I, I can't even do this. And I put down the computer, and I went into the kitchen to fix myself some lunch and just try and give myself a break. And, just, and I could not shake it, this heaviness. This, oh no, we can't be ready by that time. I thought we were going to have all this, oh no. And as I'm fixing my little peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it hit me. The Lord, Lord said, Rick, what are you studying right now? You dolt. I'm sure he said that. He says that to me from time to time. And I went back and I looked at the verse. This is my God and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will extol Him. I will lift Him up. I will put Him on the throne of my heart. And suddenly I thought, that's, that's what I need to do right now. Now, I do weird things when I'm home alone. And so I just looked around and no one was there. And I went and I got my guitar and I sat down. And I started playing I'm Amazed. And not with a whole lot of conviction at first, mind you, but I was trying to convince myself that what I was going to teach you on Sunday was true. So I'm doing it, you know, okay. Uh, the heart is heavy, and you've got to worship, so I'm going to worship, you know. I'm going to do this, I'm going to make it happen. And the first verse was like that, and the second verse got better, and the third verse got even better. And by the end of the song, I felt great. And then the phone rang. And it was Eileen from the bank, and she said, I was wrong, you do have that time. <laughs> And I hung up the phone and I just, I just went, okay, <laughs> you taught me. You gave me a lesson. You were right. Worship, gang, this is an amazing thing. Worship doesn't just lift up. When, when we extol the Father, you know what happens to us? We get lifted up right along with Him. I don't know why. I don't understand that. The Holy Spirit is, God's love is so incredible that He would lift us up. But we're not here for us, Lord. We're here for You. And yet we begin to sing to Him and we just go up with Him. 
We are extolled right alongside Him. And listen to this. Jesus' mission statement, if you will, when He came to planet Earth. Isaiah 61, verse 3. Let me read all three of the first verses. They're too good to miss. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn. Now listen. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of fainting. The mantle of praise. What a strange phrase. That God gives us the mantle of praise. We begin to worship Him. He covers us with the mantle of praise as we're worshiping together. And suddenly, we find ourselves covered with the oil of gladness. We realize we're being lifted up here. The troubles of the world are starting to fall away below us. I am no longer touched by the, the worries and the stresses because, man, I'm in worship right now. And I'm recognizing the Father. And we were, when we recognize the Father, this great and glorious saver of people... The same father who parted those seas is like, hey, he can handle anything. Worship is a reach. Lamentations, verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 39, tells us, Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? In other words, if I even have one sin on my plate, who am I to complain before the Lord God? He goes on and says, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. We lift up our heart and our hands toward God in heaven. Now you've probably seen that happen a bit in here. On occasion, someone will break out and they'll lift up their hands and people around them will... What's that all about? The Bible talks about lifting up your hands in worship to God. Not as a forced thing, not as a congregational. You will never hear me up in worship say, All right, everybody, hands up! Because you'd have people going... But why do we lift up our hands? The Bible says we lift up the Lord. It is a sign of extolling the Lord, of worshiping Him. And it's also a reminder that this is what a child does when they come to their daddy. Pick me up, Dad. I need to be picked up. I want you to hold me, Dad. And when you worship and lift up your hands, lifting up your hands and your heart to the Lord, this is what you do. Pick me up, Dad. Hold me, Abba. Worship is a reach. And we are reaching to make room for Him to rule over us. And amazingly again, somehow we are lifted up in the process. Number three, worship. Worship is reverence. Follow along with these verses, verse 3 of chapter 15. The Lord is a warrior. Those words literally are man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. And the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Look at what's happening. Listen to what they're describing here. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, and my hand will destroy them. 
And you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. And the very first descriptive word of Israel following this main event was fear. They were afraid. And then they began to sing. They were afraid. Worship is reverence. Because God is a warrior. He is a warrior. Fear and reverence, all these are words of worship. And before we get too excited about bouncing around, just all happy and slappy in worship, gang, when we worship the Lord, we are worshiping a warrior. And a dangerous one at that. And we need to recognize this about our Father. Now you may say, wait a minute, Rick. (laughs) How does this jive with the whole God of love? This sounds harsh. It sounds almost violent. My friends, at the time Moses and and Israel were singing this song, do you know what they were watching occur? The bodies of the Egyptian army were washing up onto the shore. This is not a God you mess around with. And they worshipped. The Lord is a warrior. God is love, absolutely. But there are forces of darkness and evil in this world which exist for a single purpose, and that's to destroy and derail all hope of deliverance. And God will not sit still for it. The Lord will stand, the Lord will fight for His people. Romans 12:19. Paul says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's going to pay back. The Lord is a warrior. He's a fighter. Joel chapter 2 verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? The Lord is a warrior. Yeah, but Jesus. He was a man of peace, right? And a baby in the manger and all that. Matthew 10.34, Jesus said, Do not think that I think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He's the Prince of Peace. How can he be the Prince of Peace and not come to bring peace, but a sword? I don't understand what is this saying. It is hard to understand this verse. Especially at this time of year when we're all singing about peace on earth and thinking about the harmless little baby in the manger that couldn't possibly hurt anybody. And I'll tell you what, the the world loves Christmas, and part of the reason is because Jesus is harmless there. A little baby is cute. Little Mother Mary, stable, sheep. It's cute. It's kind of sweet. It's comforting. No baby's going to come back and judge me. No baby is going to look at the way I live my life and have harsh words to say about it. No baby would do that. So... The world would like to keep Jesus in the manger, but he said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Actually, the word there, bring, is cast. I didn't come here to cast peace. I came to cast the sword. What is that saying? A.T. Robertson, I think, describes this very well. In his book, Word Pictures in the New Testament, he writes, It means a sudden hurling of a sword where peace was expected. It's not a namby-pamby sentimentalism that Christ preaches. It's not peace at any price. It's not the force of compromise with evil, but of conquest over wrong, over Satan. It is the triumph of the cross. And that's the problem with the manger scene, is if we stay there, we never see Jesus as He truly is, glorified, powerful, 
Amazing. Listen to the stunning words of the Lord regarding His return. Here's Jesus coming back into the world. Isaiah 63 verse 3. I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood was sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. Flip in your Bibles to Revelation 19. Far into the scriptures, last book in the Bible, Revelation 19. Stay serious with me on this for just a moment. You need to see, here's Jesus coming into the world. Here He is, and and the Bible tells us that His glory is appearing and His return when He comes in. He will be covered with blood. That is not a picture that we like to think about. It's a little frightening. Well, worship is reverence. You need to understand and revere the God who we worship. Look at verse, thir- uh, verse 11 of Revelation 19. And I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who is on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, which indicates judgment. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on himself, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. I did not come to bring peace, he said, but a sword. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men both free and slaves and small and great and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image and these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh the Lord is a warrior he is a mighty God and gang I don't want to sugarcoat this in the least when he returns he will return to judge the earth and there will be bloodshed And it will be a horrifying time. Horrifying, that is, for all those who have never called on His name. Who have never called out and said, Lord, I believe You. Who have never said, I accept Your grace. I need forgiveness. I want to be Your child. You see, if, if you're in that camp, well, I don't have time to go there. It's just really cool, okay? Now you might say, dude, that's a little unsettling. And I would say, dude, that's the way it's supposed to be. Because there are times in worship where we need to be unsettled. Where we need to be a little afraid. Whereas we're focusing on the Lord and singing to Him, we recognize in a, in a heartbeat He can wipe us out. 
But he chooses to save. He chooses to deliver. And all he asks, by the way, in return, is accept me. Accept my grace. Accept the offer of my salvation. And you're saved. It's a done deal. And you don't have to worry about all the rest. Well, in worship we respond to the Lord. We reach for the Lord. But we also revere the Lord for salvation is serious business. Verse 13 of chapter 15. i got to hurry. Verse 13. In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of, chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The chiefs of Moab, leaders of Moab, trembling grips them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror, listen to this. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord. Until the people pass over whom you have purchased. Number four, worship is reflection. Worship is reflection. And when you think about reflection, we we tend to think, yeah, that's right, worship is reflection. I bow my head and I just kind of reflect on all the things that God is doing. That's not what I'm talking about. Worship is reflecting the glory of the Lord off of yourself and out where others can see it. Let me explain that. Because of the Lord, because of the Lord... Because of the Lord, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and all of Canaan are shaking in their boots before Israel. Now understand something here. All the surrounding nations are scared to death, but you know what? Israel at this point had not done a thing. They hadn't entered into battle with anybody. All they had done was gather up their belongings, borrow gold and silver from Egypt, and head on out. That's it. They kind of followed the Lord where He led them. They came up. They got stuck by the sea. They were chased down by Egypt. They still had done a, hadn't done a single thing. God parts the sea. And through they go. Who among Israel caused that to happen? Nobody. They come out to the other side. And at this point, before a single sword is unshaped by an Israelite, everyone who hears about Israel is scared to death of them. Why? Because they are reflecting the glory of the Lord. Because God has done His work and all they're doing, all they're doing is following Him and in following Him they are reflecting Him. I love this phrase, motionless as stone. This means they're not moving. They're scared to death. It's like that scene, I don't know how many of you have seen The Emperor's New Groove. Like that scene where he's trying to sneak out of the city, the tall dumb guy, and, and he's running and all of a sudden someone's coming by so he stands still and goes... And then they go by, he's like, and they head gone. That's what we're talking about here. The Moabites, Israel comes by and they go, maybe if we don't move, they won't see us. They're scared to death. They're deer caught in the headlights. Gang, Israel was called to be a people that would reflect the glory of God. Isaiah 43, verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. We need to hear that. There is no Savior besides me. There is one Lord. And one way to be saved. Only one. Wow, Rick, you're just, you know, you're just being Christian. There are, there are other ways, aren't there? Hey, I'm not the one who wrote the Bible. The Bible says there is one way to be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus says. That's it. There's no Savior beside me. And he goes on. Isaiah 43:12. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there is no strange God. And there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. So we get that mixed up sometimes. We start to play God. We just want God to come and witness us. 
faithful. We are His witnesses. And He is the Lord. And Israel existed for the glory of God. That the world might see and know and understand His greatness and faithfulness through this people. And by the way, not only did that happen in ancient times, but it will happen again. The Lord will use Israel to display His glory among all the nations. And that's why they were called as a people. And gang, that's why we are called as a people. To reflect God's glory. Let me be blunt for a moment. When we worship, I fear that even as grown adults, we're far too concerned about how our worship might reflect on us. Or how our worship might affect those who are around us. Let me say this as clearly as I possibly can. We are not here to be concerned about how we appear. We are not here to worry about how we might reflect on other people. That has nothing to do with our existence here and our being here this morning. We are here to reflect the holiness, the righteousness, and the wonder of our loving warrior God. That's why we're here. And so if you happen to be one of these people singing out with a lousy voice, the people around you are going, what is wrong with that guy? (laughs) Give them a few minutes. They'll figure it out. He's got a terrible voice, but man, he must really love the Lord. He must really have something going on. I wonder what's happening in this man's heart. Excuse me, sir. (laughs) You got a lousy voice, but I couldn't help notice how loud you like to sing. What's the deal? It's the Lord. He saved me. I've been delivered. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, We all with unveiled face, beholding, literally reflecting, As in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We are reflectors. And as we worship, we reflect the glory of the Lord, which by extension means that we don't originate that glory. It doesn't come from us. It's not ours. It's His glory. Our worship game. We say this over and over, but it's simply not about our appearance. It's not about our action. It's not about our attitude. It's not about anything having to do with us. It is about the Lord. And again, I think we in the church are far too concerned with upsetting people. We're far too concerned that maybe a visitor will walk in the door and see us really worshiping and be a little uncomfortable. Hey, you know what? Let them be. I want people coming. And I want visitors to be in here and I want people to hear the word of the Lord but I also want people to see the glory of the Lord and they're not going to see it from a bunch of people who are singing like this. It's the song of the redeemed. (laughs) And all God's people singing glory, glory. Hallelujah. When's lunch? I'm playing around with this, but gang, do we know who it is we're here to worship? Is he the center of what's going on here? Man, that might mean in the middle of a song, a quiet song, everybody's seated and you just stand up. Well, that's a little weird. It may mean that you lift your hands. It may mean... (laughs) It may mean that you're just saying, Hallelujah, Father. Hallelujah, Father. (laughs) Don't use those words at work very often. I don't know what's going on here. We need to lighten up and we need to lift up the Lord and worship Him. 
and keep our focus on Him. Last thing to jot down. Worship, gang, is revelation. Worship is revelation. Verse 17. You bring them out and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. You bring them out and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. When has that happened? It hasn't yet. It hasn't happened. Moses and the children are singing this song, but now all of a sudden they go into prophecy. You bring them out, you plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, which, by the way, is Jerusalem. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, is spoken in the past tense as if it's already happened. It hadn't happened yet, but worship is revelation. Moses and the children of Israel, as they are singing the song of praise to God, suddenly are given a gift. They are allowed momentarily to see that which does not exist yet. The mountain of their inheritance, where they are headed, which by the way not a single one of them had ever yet seen. Nobody had seen Jerusalem. They had been in captivity. The furthest Moses got out of there was Moab or Midian. He got as far as Midian and never got, none of them had been in the promised land. They didn't know this. They had no way of knowing for sure this is where they were going or what this inheritance was. And yet they sing out, you bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. It's revelation, which happens in worship, I might add. You see things that you don't see other times. You might experience or know something or understand something. The Lord might speak to your heart in a way that stuns you in worship. This whole scene is amazing. And as the worship is wonderful, the song concludes and they speak of this mountain of their inheritance. What mountain is that? Again, Joel chapter 3 verse 16 tells us, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. The Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. But my friends, here's an amazing thought. Moses and the children of Israel, they receive this revelation. They see the mountain of their inheritance. This mountain. Listen to this. This mountain is your inheritance as well. This is the mountain of your inheritance. My inheritance? What do you mean? Revelation 21 verse 9 Then one of the seven angels came and spoke with me, John wrote, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride. The bride. The bride. The wife of the Lamb. Who's the bride in Scripture? It's the church. The bride is the church. Spoken of over and over. You are the bride of Christ. That's what we're called. It's not because we've done anything or we chose it. God chose us. You are the bride and he says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now you're reading along in Revelation. You go, cool, we're going to see the bride. We're going to see what she looks like. And it tells us he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. I thought he was going to show me the bride. And now he's showing me this city. Why does the angel take John to this new Jerusalem? Because that's where the bride resides. That's the zip code of the bride. And I personally believe that is where those who are in the church, those who have accepted Jesus before He comes again, those who are caught up to be with Him, that's where the church is going to live. That's going to be the residence. Wow, all of us? In Jerusalem? Everybody? Is there going to be room? We're all going to fit? 
Well, I don't know. The Bible describes a three billion square mile city. I think we're going to have room. Amazing. Worship is revelation. It's reflection. It's reverence. It's a reach. And it's the response of the saved. But let me tell you one last thing. I know we've gone long this morning, but gang, when we talk about things like this, we need to understand worship is so critical to the heart of this church and to the heart of a people who have been saved. And when we come in here to worship, we've got to understand who it is we're worshiping. I shared this on Wednesday night. I may have even shared it last week. It's just been rolling around in my head, but there is a way... There is a way the Song of Moses could have been sweeter. A way it could have been even better. A way that the notes could have soared higher, that the words could have been even more powerful, more stunning. And that's if they had sung the song on the other side of the sea. If when they were backed up to the sea, all clouded in, knowing that Egypt was right on the other side, ready to strike, if at that point, instead of whining and wailing, they had broke into song, That would have been mind-boggling. Can you imagine the camp of Egypt and what that would have done to them? Talk about demoralizing. What do they know that we don't know on the other side of that dark cloud? What do they understand that we don't understand? We're about to pulverize them and they're singing? Paul and Silas in prison. They're about to be executed as far as they knew. As far as they were concerned, they might be there for life. They're chained up in the bowels of a prison. And they start to sing little praise songs. And they weren't looking at their watches. In the middle of the night, they sang. But they sang before their salvation, before their deliverance. And it was after the singing went on for a while that God said, Okay, dispatch some angels. i got to get these guys out. And boom, the chains were lifted. And they were freed from the prison. And what happened then? Not only were they saved from the prison, but the Philippian jailer, he and his whole family were saved as well. There is an amazing salvation that happens when the people who know they are saved begin to sing and worship the Lord before they are saved. Other people, other people are affected and end up saved. Okay, worshiping the Lord after the fact, thanking Him for things He has already done, it's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But when we worship ahead of time, before the fact, before we see His hand, before we experience His salvation, while our prayers of deliverance still hang heavy in the air, unanswered, when we worship Him in those times, then the worship is sweet. And that's faith. And I believe that's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 4, verse 23. He says, An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And this is the truth. This is the truth. Though you have not seen heaven, though you have not held the hand of your Savior, though you have not physically with your eyes seen Jesus come down, Though you haven't walked the streets or seen the gates, you are saved. You are saved. And because of that, we rejoice. Because of that, we worship. How could God's children do any less?